Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeremy Perigo, and in this podcast, I bring in guest theologians, scholars, musicians, Christian leaders, and together we attempt to bridge faith and ministry praxis. Worship Theology is a podcast to fuel and nurture vital discussions on worship, music, and theology. So we're so glad that you've joined us as we think deeply about Christian worship. Today's podcast focuses on selling worship and celebrity worship. And to help us navigate these important topics, we have Professor Pete Ward, who's Professor of Practical Theology at Durham University in the UK. And Pete actually has books titled Selling Worship and another one called Celebrity Worship. So he's going to help us navigate this. Pete, it's a delight to, yeah, to be able to hang out with you and talk a little bit about worship and theology. Yeah, I remember the first time I met you, I think was at London School of Theology, but I was um, connected with your work, yeah, years before that, and just yeah, appreciate everything you've you've contributed to the academy and to the church. What a joy to be with you! Thanks, Jeremy. It's good to join you too. Well, one of the questions that we often ask our guests, since we're talking kind of about worship and theology, mm-hmm. is what's a memorable moment in in corporate worship for for yourself? What's something as you think about you know a life of participating and studying? Um, yeah, the church and worship. What's what's a what's a memory that comes to your mind? Well, I mean, it's probably a, li- a little off piste for uh, contemporary worship. That's but, good. Um, you know, when I was a teenager, it was in the seventies, and I used to go to a local Anglican church, and the only thing they offered was sixteen sixty two prayer book. And so I actually grew up in my teenage years going to 1662 Evensong because the youth group was after it, you see. And um, so I was schooled in that, um, well, in in that that deep liturgical, uh, scriptural actually, stuff that Cranmer wrote into the prayer book. Um, and I think that's that's stayed with me um, very much. Interestingly, it, it it didn't have the sort of contemporary song worship, nor actually was it was it was it a communion or Eucharist. It was evening prayer. It's interesting. Like I know a number of friends like me that grew up in either charismatic or Pentecostal churches that had a very different kind of high school experience than you just described. Um, and even Baptist friends like that did have lots of contemporary song, extemporaneous prayer. As they've gotten older, um, yeah, many of them have started attending Anglican churches or even friends that have kind of shifted from ultra charismatic, you know, prophetic words with wild metaphors every Sunday to to, um, yeah, the Eastern Orthodox Church. And I think some of that's within them was a hunger for a, a more historic um, and rooted faith. I think myself, I did my doctorate at the Institute for Worship Studies, Robert Weber. So for me, it was a desire to, yeah, continue kind of this this charismatic free church experience, but also, yeah, understand, a, a yeah, to have a deeper understanding of, of, of worship, kind of why we do what we do. Why do you think, 
particularly in kind of the, the free church, evangelical, Baptist, Pentecostal, why sometimes has theology and worship been at odds? Um, have you experienced that? Have you seen that in, in some of your studies or experiences where in those churches there's a push against um, the study of, of theology or a push against the academy um, and, and defining worship kind of as against that? Well, um, I suppose, I mean, with my other hat on, um, where I've, I've been running this international network um, about qualitative research yeah. in theology, I, I think one of the things is that the, the worlds that we're in, the church worlds that we're in, be it a contemporary worship-led thing or silence in the Quakers or, or yeah. the Orthodox Church, our lived experiences are full of theology. That that they're deep theological places because they're they're what's meaningful to us. It's what we live out of, and it's a false it's a false juxtaposition between the academy and you know like the contemporary church world to say the contemporary church world is devoid of theology because it's but it is definitely there in the academy i don't think that's true at all i think i think it's full of theology um might not uh, there might be issues that we we would want to think about in relation to it but because fundamentally theology is about god and people's experience of god and what's going on in these communities is that people are finding ways to experience god and they're finding ways to talk about the experience of god and that's theology so maybe yeah i think a lot of the books i was reading in my masters and doctorate in kind of the 90s 2000s was written by denominational um liturgical theologians so from a reformed perspective or an anglican perspective and so as they looked at charismatic worship or Baptist worship, they would say, oh, there's no, there's no theology here, or they'd critique it based on, uh, one of the examples I can remember was, oh, well, there's no prayer because there's not a pastoral, there's not a pastoral prayer like there is in our church. And I tried to explain to one of the professors, well, actually in our Pentecostal church growing up, we had prayer for pastoral prayers for about three hours on a Wednesday night, and that's where um, that that kind of theology of of prayer of intercession was expressed, not on a, a Sunday morning. And I, I love what you're saying here because you're you're highlighting that there are deeply held beliefs and views around what the church is, what the church is called to be, what worship is, even if it's not written in an academic book. And so I hear part of your work and, and some of your f former students, I talked to Glenn Packiam just last week, kind of mining, uh, mining kind of the church, the voices of the church for their, their beliefs rather than simply just reading a kind of denominational view of things. And so that's, yeah, that's... It's, it's fascinating. Has there been things, you know, you've been studying Christian worship, the church, ecclesiology for, for quite some time. Has, as you look at, at those voices, yeah, has there been things that have emerged in the beliefs around worship? Again, that's a, that's a huge question. That's, that's a big, big, big question. But particularly those from the free church, are there, there components that they're contributing to a, a, a broader view of, of theology of worship that maybe some of the denominations or some of those that are actually writing about it are maybe missing out? Well, um, 
I mean, my direct research, it'll be interesting. I'm currently actually working on bluegrass music and gospel songs in bluegrass. I hope we get a chance to talk about that. But in my, in my doctoral research, um, which was into contemporary worship in the UK, um, uh, one of the surprising things, one of the things that surprised me was I'd kind of assumed, I kind of believed what churches sort of said about themselves being theologically conservative, hmm. uh, being consistent in their belief and so on. Um, and what I found extraordinary, what I did was I looked at songbooks um, that were published in the UK and popular... When I looked at the songbooks, I realised that, that, that sort of every five years a new songbook came out which tended to be popular and take over the scene a bit. Yeah. And so I looked at those songbooks and particularly the lyrics and the, I analysed them in terms of their theological content. Um, and... What surprised me, really, was, was you know, uh, the period I looked at was between the 60s and the 80s, mid-80s, mid-60s. And actually, I'd lived through that period. I'd used those songbooks. I'd, I'd been in different pews, but I'd basically, as each one came in, you know, like everybody else in, in the church, I used those songbooks. Um... And what was interesting was that the theolo if if you asked how do I think about God in these songs, how do these songs how do these songs position me in relation to God? How do they imagine God? What do they talk about? How do they see salvation? How do they see perhaps wider society? What I realized was that that um you journeyed through almost, I mean, radically different landscapes, theological landscapes, from one songbook to the next. Um, and so, although I might have been basically going to a similar kind of church, singing similar kinds of songs, um because I got into churches that did sing contemporary songs eventually. Um, the, the way that those songs guided me into a relationship with God was very, very different over the period. In fact, I will have done twists and turns. <laughs> now... Uh, that finding needs to be tempered by the fact that you don't sing songs always from one period. You sing a variety, um, and in the modern, in the contemporary arena, we now have, you know, digital technologies and not songbooks. So, so this idea of song collections is more problematized in the present. But nevertheless, what I think. What we're looking at is if there is if there is a gift to the church, it's one that perhaps is surprising and we didn't expect. In that a church that thinks it's theologically conservative, is actually really very very fluid. Hmm. 
And one of the ways you see, yeah, as you're sharing, you're, you see that in the songs they're singing and the songs they're selecting, the songs they're writing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I can re- and uh, people talk about God in different ways. They imagine themselves in relation to that God in different ways, quite radically at, at times, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's, an, that's interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think as, as we look at the evangelical movement, one of the things that, that comes to mind is how so many of these churches that may not have a, a charismatic theology of worship or they might even be slightly cessationist in their, in their you know, their prayer or their approach to healing or their, their, their view of the spirit, many of them have embraced... Um, embodied forms of worship. So I, I just think of my Anglican church we went to in Northwood, like you'd see if, if I'd put up the, the books I read for my master's on Anglican theology of worship and look at the church, I would struggle to find some resonance at times because I'd see, you know, people lifting their hands, singing, shouting, um, praying for one another, hearing, you know, God speak within the service and then maybe sharing that as a, a, a prophetic word. Um, and I think, as as I think about these 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 songs that you were talking about in hymn books, those have been embraced beyond the streams that maybe they were originally written for, beyond the denominations or the churches, and and some of that impact you've been talking about for for years around kind of the economy and the market of how these conferences and hymn books and recordings are sold. They're they're used as commercial products. And I'm just I'm just curious. I know that's drawing. It's not the bluegrass stuff yet, but it's drawing from, you know, research of yours from 10, 15 plus years ago. How has that worship movement in the, that you've yeah, been looking at for yeah, almost two decades kind of changed? Have have you seen changes in in kind of this modern worship movement as as you've been looking at it for years? Well, yes, absolutely. Uh, there's an awful lot to say about all of that. I mean, the the first thing to say is that my attitude to what you might call the productive processes of worship, um, you know, studios and recording companies and publishing companies and CCLI and artists and and um, groups like Worship Central and yeah. so on, my attitude to all of that is that the these facilitate the work of God. Um, But at the same time, they have the potential to damage the work of God. But that's as much true of, of, say, classical music and choirs in cathedrals. You know, they can bless and they can be problems. uh, uh, Because they're cultural forms... They're places that God inhabits and the Holy Spirit uses, but at the same time they're, they always carry within them a sort of Achilles heel at times. So to, to identify commercial processes shouldn't be taken per se as a critique on my part. It's not. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, it, there are things about it that that are issues. I mean, we've had this thing, 
with the worship artist selling personal appearances yeah. for a tour. That was a big yeah. scandal. A VIP. You can get a VIP with certain yeah. artists and yeah. backstage and yeah. a photo on stage with them. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, I mean, people have been scandalized by that and people have called it out as, as not the right thing. And, um, and in, in a way, it's the sort of downside of the logic is we use popular culture the way popular music works. My understanding is that, is that a sort of secular manager got involved with that tour. Um, we use the culture of popular music around us, stadium rock, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then, and then along with that contextualization of the gospel and theology and worship comes pitfalls. Yeah. Um, and some of those are unforeseen really, but, but they're there always, um, so to talk about um, what I saw, so my research originally started looking at the 60s and I was, I was really asking, I mean, my experience growing up in a church that was just all we had was 1662 and then a bit later on every church seemed to have a worship band. Yeah. I was really asking, well, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah. How, how did That's this That's a dramatic shift, change? yeah. And it, yeah. I mean, I'm talking in the Anglican, the Church of England. Yeah. You know, what you've described, people putting their hands up in the church yeah. you yeah. went to in, in West London. Um, it's yeah. not at all unusual. How did this come about? How did we move from all you did was Cranmer to this? Yeah. And I wanted to try and trace that. How did it come about? And one of the things that I found that was very interesting was that in the 60s, there was a group of people who were particularly concerned to reach young people with the gospel. And they wanted to um, get bands that would do evangelism, particularly in coffee bars and schools and so on. And groups like Youth for Christ are very active in promoting um, bands. Yeah. Um, and then a sort of little network started to grow up. There was a group called Music Gospel Outreach. They started to publish a magazine called Buzz. And they started to promote these artists, one of whom was Graham Kendrick, actually. Um, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna be talking to him either later this week or next week yeah, in a similar well, format. Um, so we, Graham, we can dig in, dig into some of this with him too. You know, Graham was a singer songwriter who was going around selling albums, doing gigs as evangelism, really. Um, and when Spring Harvest, the sort of um, teaching festival thing, started in the eighties or whenever it was with Youth for Christ and others partnering together, along with Buzz, actually. Um, Graham was enticed to lead worship. And I think it was literally enticed in that it wasn't <laughs> his main gig. His main gig was yeah. performing as a yeah. singer-songwriter. Yeah. Then people liked it so much, 
he was persuaded to release an album. And immediately what happened was that his worship album sold ten times his regular album. At the same time, the bottom fell out of the economics of Christian publishing around CCM in the UK. And this is a key difference between the UK and the US, in that people doing CCM just couldn't make any money and they couldn't live. But worship actually was was a viable alternative. Yeah, a viable career. They could well, pay the bills. Well, particularly if you were employed by a church as a yeah. worship leader. Yeah. Um, but the, the music companies and the record companies saw this immediately. They realised that um, there was an album called If uh, uh, The Fisher Folk Did an Album of Stuff. Um and there were one or two others, early early worship albums, um, come together, the musical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, where we all formed choirs and learnt to raise our hands. <laughs> um, you know, it sold thousands and was economically viable. And, and so I... What was these these pro economic processes, and then if you add to it the development of CCLI, um, what what you can see is that is that is that the worship scene, in a sense, was sustainable, and and um, it could it people could get behind it, and that business processes from pop music could be used with it. Um, and I think that, on one level, that facilitates it, but I think it isn't really the story. The real story is that the Holy Spirit changed people's lives in churches through the music. Yeah, in in an article you wrote a while back, 2011, or I think it's a chapter in a book on the kind of the economies of charismatic evangelical worship, but you touch on yeah. some of these themes and... Yeah, as you're sharing the Graham Kendrick story, I can imagine, and I'll ask, I'll ask him, I'll ask him, what was it, what was it like when you when you made that first album, and how are, how did you discern, you know, the difference between sales and the spirit and the spirit? What's what's the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit? What might be, yeah, economic models for selling albums? You you write this in in this chapter for Wilts. It may be possible theologically to say that God was at work in the business side of worship, one should be wary of too close of an identification with sales and the spirit. How, how do you think, Pete, that, yeah, sometimes we've equated sales, album sales with the spirit's activity? Have, have we done that? I've, uh, yeah. Is, is that, I think, well, I think you're saying we, ha- we have sometimes. Like, if you, if you sell a million, it's like, thank you, God, God's it, moving. Yeah. Things have calmed down a little bit on my yeah. social media feed. But go back before the pandemic and most days I would have someone really excited about what God was going to do at the event that they were plugging yeah. and celebrating how many people came to their thing. Um, and that sense that we see God's blessing in the numbers of people that come to something. 
has been very, very strong, I think. Yeah. And that that goes for the larger churches, the way they feel about themselves and the way they feel about others that don't have lots of people coming, I think. I, I think it goes for smaller churches too. If if one week yeah. you have 50 and the next week you have 100, God's, God's on the move. Yeah. Um, and I think... I mean, why I'm interested in qualitative research, why I think Glenn's research is is great about Christian hope and so on, and there are lots of other people yeah. starting to ask this, is we, if, we, if we go a little bit beyond the bare metrics of something, and, um, I mean, the impact of the church growth movement from Fuller on on the Christian worship scene in the UK and the US has been immense. But that basically was a sort of economics-based model. Numbers equals God's blessing. Yeah. Um, uh, but you see, if we then, if we start to ask, well, well, what's actually going on in people's lives and we spend time with research onto that, um it that's uh, um we began to see some of the ambiguity in people's experience um i mean even when when we interview people that have gone forward at an evangelistic event you know you find that people have gone forward every night that week <laughs> or or when you when we were holding them in football stadiums, some people would say, "Well, I just really wanted to walk on the pitch at Anfield." <laughs> so so the, there's lots of reasons on the pitch. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> at the same time, God will be using all of this as well. And so I think I think um, just being having a certain theological humility. Um, not completely undermining, not completely self-doubting, but having a certain humility and, and a willingness to look at what's, what, what's going on in some depth. It needs to be part of what we do, I think. Yeah. I think that posture of, of kind of wanting to mine what's actually happening, wanting to understand... I think in one, it's it's one of your main contributions to practical theology, ecclesiology, but also on the pastoral level, on the leadership level, to hear the stories, hear the beliefs, hear like to be relationally connected with those that yeah you've been called to serve is something that is yeah is humbling at times when you're trying to build a ministry or or produce an event or something, but to actually hear the words or the stories or the experiences. Is yeah, a, can be a powerful um, tool to gain more gain more understanding of what's actually happening. You know, four hundred people got baptized. Well, yeah, what was their experience of that? What led to that? And also, what what are they hoping that transforms in their own hearts and minds in the weeks and years to come? You mentioned humility too. Some of your recent scholarship is around celebrity worship. Um, one of your monographs published recently, I, th I think I heard you draw from that in a, a lecture in London a, f a few years ago. Um, 
why? I mean, this is probably very potent the last year in the in the church world too, as we've seen so many celebrity pastors um, take breaks, be removed. Um, why are celebrities so important to us as people? Not only just in the church, but why are they a central part of our lives? Uh, well, it's slightly complicated argument that I have, but. Uh, the short answer is celebrities are important in our lives because media is. All, we, all of our lives is lived now in relation to screens. Yeah. And I think celebrity culture is what media, or my definition of it, celebrity culture is what media does to people. Not just the ones that perhaps are featured on the screen but more importantly it's the kind of relationships that we build with those people who are on the screens and um, media um, re reorients our sense of people in different ways I think um, in all sorts of subtle ways, like for instance, you know, um, Instagram and and so on, take us into people's lives in an intimate way, so we feel we know them more deeply. Um, uh, Facebook and Twitter do something sort of similar. Um, and what's what's interesting about that is it's not just um, uh, that, that that's something that's there for all of us in a lot of ways. You know, we're all looking at the the red um, alerts that somebody's liked what we put up. Yeah. Um, yeah. But th there's something about media which is. Uh, it has the character of, of what Baudrillard calls the hyper-real. So that something becomes more real when it's on a screen to us. Um, and at the same time, it also creates a sort of distance for, between us. So one of the phrases is, is parasocial relationships. In other words, we feel that we know people that actually we've never met and actually don't know. And I think that um, the, uh, well, let's say abuses of power in the Christian church happen in, in all denominations and in all ages, it seems. But there, there are particular things that media do, uh, that, that contemporary media has done. Um, I mean, think, think of a figure like Rob Bell. Um, hang on, that's my dog. <laughs> you think someone like Rob is, Bell... Is the, is, the do, is, is the dog a Rob Bell fan? <laughs> <laughs> no, the dog is barking someone off the house who's leaving. Um, my wife has a meeting with someone and they've just gone, they'll stop in a sec. Um, if we think of Rob Bell... 
Why is Rob Bell Rob Bell? It's because of those Numa things. Yeah. That's why Rob Bell's Rob Bell. So people felt that they knew him. And those things extended his significance way, way beyond what he was as a pastor of a big church um, in Michigan. Um, and so when Rob Bell does something or says something that people find disturbing, that's amplified because of this hyper-real relationship that we, everyone, everybody has. It's a bigger impact because of his reach. It's Is media it that, that they, that. they They feel that, or we feel that we know him, we, there's things yeah. we like about him, we're connected with him, and then if he's has a different view, a different belief, a different practice. Yeah. We're like, yeah. oh, you, you let us down, Rob. You, like, I thought, I thought yeah. we were on the same page. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, uh, but you see, the thing is that we have things invested in figures like Rob Bell. I mean, this, uh, this incident with um, Will Smith slapping someone at the Oscars. Yeah, yeah. Chris Rock and Will Smith, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a big thing. I, it's the Oscars. It's a big thing. Everybody's watching it. But it's a big thing because what does it tell us about how we felt about Will Smith? How did I, how do I feel about Will Smith now? And how did I feel about him? You know. Um. And and. Uh, so, so what's going on in in what I've called celebrity worship? Is, is this relationship that we have with people who mean things to us um, and how complicating that is. Yeah. One, one of the questions I had, um, I, I put out some feelers to some friends and students knowing that I was going to talk to you. And one of them um, from Liturgy Fellowship, it's a Facebook group online, ask what makes celebrities different than, yeah, humanity's historic love for famous people, heroes, saints, artists, leaders. I think you're, you're, you're touching on that a little bit, but what makes, you know, what makes our love for St. Paul or people's love for Churchill or, uh, yeah, other famous people throughout history, what's maybe different about, about celebrities in the way that you're defining it? Well... You're right. There is there's an important um, continuity between fame and celebrity. There are some things that have been around for centuries. Some scholars talk about the first celebrity being Alexander the Great, and the reason for that is he he made his image. He he got he got a sculptor to reproduce his image, and then he spread it around his empire. Uh, the Caesars did the same on their coins. Mm. And the Tudor monarchs did it the same with with pictures. So fame and renown has been something that's been with us for a long time. But I think one of the key changes is, is our changes in media, particularly film and photography and then digital media. But... Along with that has gone a sort of um, 
the ability to generate product out of personal life so that so that we we don't just um know uh know about uh, a star in terms of what they do in a movie we now know their backstory and they've told their us their dog's name they like yeah, yeah and but the paparazzi have have you know snapped them I think someone like Britney Spears the sort of media intrusion but also how everybody took up a view about Britney you know she became public property in the United States it, yeah. in a way that that um she wasn't just under a constricting order from her father. She was she was held in bondage by the media. I think. And uh, so we we have it's the it's the exposure of personal life, and that personal life becoming a, the product. Uh, which which is a key aspect of things you talk um yeah you use the the term sacred self a number of times in in this book on celebrity worship and state celebrities represent the possibility of the self celebrities are not worshiped because they're they are special in themselves but because they represent something to their fans so yeah can you unpack that a little bit around the the sacred self. Maybe often we think of celebrities as idols that we're worshiping, but I, as I read your book, I think it was, yeah, pointing to things in my own heart or in the lives of other humans that I'm connected with around celebrities. Yeah, what is the sacred I, self I think, and how, how does it work? Uh, yeah, I think Christian Christians tend to be what you might call naive realists about this sort of thing. So they look at a figure like a celebrity and they go you shouldn't worship this person you need to worship Jesus you shouldn't be influenced by this person you need to go to the scriptures and to church and so on and generally that's a complete misunderstanding of what's actually going on because I don't think we worship celebrities although I've called it celebrity worship, I don't think we actually worship celebrities. One of the reasons for that is we enjoy seeing that when they fail. Yeah. We're as much delighted by their mess-ups and when it goes spectacularly and badly wrong as we are... I'm not here talking about perhaps criminal or abusive behaviour. Yeah. I'm, I'm more talking about just just that sort of sense that we we might have a regard for people but we're also in half of our mind waiting for them to mess up and the reason for that is we're comparing our lives to their lives we're processing who we are in relation to them we're we're processing our values um, what do I think is important? Uh, if I had all that money, I wouldn't have left that beautiful wife for that person. Um, if I had all that money, I wouldn't have bought that house. Uh, 
or if I had all, all that money, I really would buy that house. Um, hmm. We're processing who we are in relation to who they are. And so the, the important thing in, the, in this transaction, this intimacy of the hyper-real and the personal, is, is, not, is not the person, the celebrity, they're not important at all. We are. Um, it's what we think about ourselves that's important. How, how do you think this is, you know, the final chapter in that, that book kind of looks at the evangelical celebrity culture. How have these, these trends, these kind of approaches, kind of what's happening in broader celebrity culture impacted the church and particularly the role of, of worship leader? Well, um, we've, we've tended to want to appropriate celebrities the way advertisers have. You know, so, so we, want, we want a celebrity to endorse our brand. So it's really great if Justin Bieber goes to my church and, and I can be shown out socialising with, with, you know, somebody famous. And that makes, that bigs up my thing. Um, I think I think that that we it's clear that we've fallen into that quite a bit. Um, so, kind of using celebrities to endorse what what we're doing. I can think of yeah. was at a church in Colorado when Mel Gibson, yeah. um, right before he released The Passion of the Christ, they brought yeah. they yeah. brought him up. But you, um, but you see, because that's had him a share. realist view of it. Yeah. The church uses somebody for that, not realising that half the people that know that person hate them. They despise them as much as half of them think they're great. They might be famous, but yeah. they're, they're, they, they, they cut a divide. You know, for as many people who, who think... Um, Justin, you know, uh, Justin Bieber or Lady Gaga are, are wonderful. There's just as many people who think that they're absolutely dreadful. Yeah. And um, moreover, you know, as as we found with so many celebrities, that like like the guy that played golf, I forget his name now. Um, Tiger Woods. Tiger. Yeah, Tiger. Yeah. You know. Suddenly things happen and it goes wrong and all the endorsers are embarrassed. Um, and so we, we miss under, if we, if we haven't done our homework on how the wider culture around us works, we get suckered in as the church. I think that's one thing. I think worship leaders, leaders, um, I mean, I think I, I've been challenging someone to do a PhD on the impact of Coldplay and U2 and Stadium Rock on the contemporary worship scene, yeah. because I think I think it's it's significant. 
Yeah. Um, and particularly on the U- UK side, I can see those links with Delirious, Soul Survivor, some of those sounds yeah. coming in the 90s, yeah, 2000s. Yeah, but it's it's more about the culture of it, the, mm-hmm. the idea that you can do worship tours now, for instance, um, which blurs being a, being a band and being a worship leader. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the idea that the worship leader um, yeah I mean they, they, they're just it, you know the worship leader can present themselves as having uh, an experience of God that they then want to lead everybody else in they've got, they've got a special charism you know um, yeah. There's there's that going on. There's um, people reading the worship leader through pop music, and the conventions of pop music, and then there is just this thing that media does to people. You know, if if you put out swanky videos, people are going to relate to you differently and relate to the songs that you put out differently than than was the case when when we when we didn't and some of that go ahead ahead. if you take my the logic of what i said before right at the beginning there'll be aspects of that that will move people and god will use and there'll be aspects of it that are that are problematic yeah as i was kind of preparing for this kind of thinking through re-looking through selling worship and some of those articles and celebrity worship, I started to think of whose examples of maybe disruptors of those processes or churches that are, yeah, still, of course, utilizing media to, to share the gospel, to stream their services, to share their, their music. And I, I, my mind went pretty quick to Keith Green. Um, he's in these conversations, often people you talked about VIP passes, you know, to see certain artists, you know, worship leaders. I often in those those conversations see other people posting, you know, Keith Green's advertisement in in Christian magazines and the saying you want to buy back to Egypt, which was one of his out al- one of his albums. Well, you can't because it's it's free. And so, <laughs> like, are there are there examples that that you think of or churches or, or worship leaders? Maybe it's even practices that um, enable us to, to recognize that those, those trends are powerful um, and might not be all wrong or bad, but also there needs to be some disruption or discernment around, yeah, the, the idea of kind of selling, consuming, and the idea of, of the power of celebrity or how we use celebrity. Well, if we pull back... Um to, you know, the second great awakening in the United States. At that period, preaching was the thing. Now, interestingly, that, you know, people talk about George Whitfield as as a celebrity. He used media to promote what he did and all of that. You know, thousands would come and listen to him. But what was going on was preaching dial forward to the present what's going on is this music thing worship um 
the, I mean, the fact is, as I said in my research, in the, if you go back to the mid-60s, we weren't doing any of this. It's all been invented. <laughs> I mean, in the, in the mid-60s, we sang a hymn and then we got on with the next thing. Um, and then charismatic renewal came in, and and then Wimber and so on. All of this has swept into the church, you know. In well, how long ago is the eighties? Forty years ago. Yeah. Um, I can't help but think there will be a point where it's run its course. Mm -hmm. um, now, part of the issue is that there are all sorts of institutional and spiritual reasons why people wouldn't want to let it go. But nevertheless, um, mm. there is a part of me sitting by the pool waiting for the next stirring, mm. if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, I thought it was there with the alternative worship world, you know, and yeah. visuals and dance music and all of that. Yeah. Um, but it turned out to be a minority sport. Yeah. And Wimber won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's still churches that engage in that, particularly the UK, but it's like, as you said, it's, it's a minority. It's a Saturday evening yeah. with a handful here, or an alternative gathering on Sunday, yeah. where where there is kind of that multimedia, full life worship, yeah. park park woods worship. Some of yeah. some of that, yeah, is happening. Yeah, but and a friend of mine is yeah, in a minority. very traditional Anglican theological college posted on Twitter tonight. We're doing alternative worship. And I'm like, oh, right, <laughs> this, this revolution is stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, uh, reasoning as if this thing is a thing that we can reason with and reason, reason along with and twist and tweak a bit might not be wisdom. If you see what I mean, yeah. Well, for you, what's next um, is is bluegrass. You you shared early on that that in your own research, um, yeah, you're kind of shifting towards towards bluegrass and kind of mm -hmm. gospel music. What right now? Give us just a quick window into kind of what what you're doing with that and why. Yeah, what what are you what are you beginning to observe and see as you're you're studying this? Well. One of the interesting things about bluegrass music is that gospel songs have always been at its heart. And, um, you know, most bands will end with gospel songs at the end of a night. Most albums have got a, a, some gospel songs on them. Most, um, most bands, I mean, in the early years of bluegrass, Scholars estimate that a third of the music recorded were gospel songs. Um, and and those of us that are just amateur pickers, and that's one of the things about the bluegrass world, is that most people play as well as 
enjoy it as fans. So sitting around jamming with your friends is is as much part of it as going and listening to a band. And in that context, the, the gospel songs play a part. And my question was, I knew that a lot of my friends really weren't terribly religious church people, and yet they liked these songs that meant something to them. So I was asking, well, why, why do, what do the, what do these gospel songs like "I'll Fly Away" or "Will the Circle Be Unbroken" or "Keep on the Sunny Side of Life"? What do these songs mean to people who aren't part of church? And so I've been interviewing people, you know, some of whom are secular Jews, some are atheists, some are people who, with a church background, they don't particularly believe. Some are Buddhists. Um, others are very keen evangelical Christians trying to make some sense of what these songs mean and why they form still an important part of people's lives, why, why people love them, why they're moved by them, why, why they make a difference to people. Um, and what's interesting is that you see these songs, the gospel songs particularly, being picked up by not just... Um, not just in the sort of bluegrass world. I mean, you've got people like Robert Plant, who influenced by Alison Krauss, yeah. you know, including these old gospel songs in their repertoire. Yeah. Sometimes concert, going yeah. to blues stuff that they knew before, like um, Jesus Gonna Make Up My Dying Bed, which Led Zeppelin did. And uh, sometimes the old blues guys that they go to rather than the bluegrass people. But nevertheless... Quite often, in, in a much wider world, Emmylou Harris, reaching back, and when they do, they include the gospel songs in there, because the gospel songs say something deep about roots and authenticity. Um, so, I think one of the things that's always motivated my research from when I was working with young people was asking, and I wrote a book called Liquid Church, which was sort of saying, where are people being spiritual outside of church and what's the missiological imperative for this? Because it seemed to me nearly every church runs on the basic idea, we set up a meeting, we get people to come to it. And I was sort of saying, well, actually, there's an awful lot going on that isn't in our churches in all sorts of different ways. Um you know, there's spirituality in gardening, there's spirituality in the way people go to art exhibitions, there's spirituality in the way families celebrate children. And bluegrass is just one aspect of that. Um, and I suppose the theological question beyond that is, what's God doing when people are singing about the gospel when they're, you know at a bluegrass festival and most people aren't going to church. Where, how, what does this say? What does this say about the persistence of a Christian culture and how it gets repurposed and reused by people over time? And I suppose the question beyond that is, if people can sing songs about God and Jesus and so on, and feel moved by them, but then not feel that they need to come to our church. What's what's the challenge to the church about that? If you see what I mean. Yeah. 
So uh, there's an irony, really, in that as a lot of our churches have become more intense with the contemporary worship stuff, this older stuff that is sort of gentler and more inclusive, it sort of assumes everybody goes to heaven, for instance. This old stuff, people find a consolation in. And um, maybe that has a spiritual message for us in the church. Um, saying... Um, well, I'm not quite sure what it's saying, actually. Um, <laughs> I need to spend more time doing the research. But I'm pretty sure yeah, it is... Yeah, but asking... Is, Asking those questions even, I think, are good for, yeah, students, those listening, where where might be God active in this? Where might be, we see glimpses of the kingdom in, in yeah, in the lyrics, in the expression, in the community being formed around these songs, particularly for those that, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't self-identify as a Christian, but are singing songs, the, yeah, singing songs about the gospel, singing songs about their relationship with God and Christ, and, and then bringing that into a performance context where they're inviting others to sing. Um, I think those are, yeah, fantastic questions for us to, to wrestle with. I'd love to spend more time with you, Pete, um, another time, maybe maybe face-to-face in, in England, in Durham. But it's been a, such a delight to be able to hang out with you and just hear about your work and hear some of your thoughts on worship and celebrity worship. And even, even a little taster of this bluegrass work is, has been a real treat. Thanks for your time today, Pete. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the Worship Theology Podcast, where we are bridging the intersection of faith and ministry praxis. Um, Special thanks to the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship for their support of this project. God.